Hello and welcome to Talking Bottom. I'm Paul Tanter. I'm Matt Brooks. And I'm Ange Pearson. And we are honoured to be joined by a very special guest this week. There are few men as instrumental in the rise and popularity of alternative comedy as this person. Many of the comedy legends we know and love got their big break after he saw them at the comedy store and as a fledgling producer gave them their TV debuts. As a TV executive, he brought the Royal Family and The Office to the screen and Anton Deck to primetime television. He introduced Gordon Ramsay to America and is the founding chairman of Comic Relief. As a producer and director, he's worked on shows as varied as The Two Ronnies, Carrots Lib, Three of a Kind, Cannon and Ball, Girls on Top, Saturday Live and Benidorm. He also directed episodes of, and literally brought to television, Red Dwarf, The Young Ones, Filthy Rich and Cat Flap, and the pilot episode of Bottom. Paul Jackson, welcome and thank you for joining us and for shaping our childhood funny bones. It's a privilege to have you here talking Bottom with us today. Well, I have to say, after an intro like that, you know, it's all, I've come a long way to get that intro, so I'm fine. It's fantastic Good to, to have be you here, here, guys. Thank you very <laughs> fantastic, much. Fantastic to have you here with us. You joined the BBC in 1971 as what was then known as a call boy, I believe. Was that an ad you answered by mistake? No, it was... Um, <laughs> your, listen, you'll have to do the dates because I am hopeless at dates. But that sounds right. I knew I wanted to go in the BBC. My dad worked at the BBC and I didn't want to actually join while he was there. I joined about 18 months after he retired. But at that time, to get into the BBC on the kind of production pathway, uh, was that you had to go to a department called Studio Management, which Ed, I know, has explained to you, Ed has explained to you. And there were four grades. I think there was the runners, what you'd call now a runner, mm. or they called it a floor assistant, but it had until very recently been called a callboy. And then there was the AFM, vision mixer, floor manager, uh, and they were, the, they were the four roles. And so, yes, I joined as a floor assistant or runner, mm. and they did call them callboys. In fact, mm. one of the... One of, the, one of the guys, the old guys, still doing it with us, was an extraordinary man called Monsignor, Monsieur Eddie Gray. And Monsieur Eddie Gray had been one of the crazy gang, would you believe? That sounds like a bottom character, doesn't it? <laughs> it does, doesn't it? Monsieur Eddie Gray. He was, he was, by this time, he was in his 60s, and he'd been in the business all his life. And he was the, the crazy gang with two, uh, three couples, Norton and Wayne and Flanagan Lowell and, uh, and Eddie was the kind of spare one and he was a floor, he was a floor. anyway they called them call boys and it was said at the time that they had to change the name because we were all men at that time the whole department was men and they thought it would be a good idea maybe to get some women in uh, but they couldn't call them call girls so they <laughs> decided to call them floor assistants and genuinely people used to talk like that oh we'll have to change it then to floor assistants mm-hmm. so yeah I, jo- I joined as a floor assistant how times have changed and of course you worked your way up to senior producer um yeah. just to ask was that always the plan then or had you other aspirations you, you mentioned know your, i never had dad. a plan Andrew. I, I just my, i've been so lucky with my career i knew i wanted to do that when i was a kid i thought i wanted to act or, or be a comedian I, I was always very keen on comedy and my parents who had both been actors and my dad by this time was a tv producer said no you go to university first you've got to you know this is a really really difficult, dangerous way to make a living. And so I went to uni, I did some drama, I became social secretary, I started putting on big concerts with bands like The Who and The Nice and mm. uh, Swinging Blue Jeans. I mean, it was a great time. And I started to think, do you know what, I'm better at organising this stuff than I am at maybe. And so I thought I'll become a producer. But to be a producer, to join the BBC at this runner level, you had to have theatre experience. And I mean, you know, a year or two years. Uh, and you had to have a degree. So when I interviewed for two jobs, the final board, there were 12 of us and we were all stage managers and degree uh, level. And then once I was in, I just wanted to do, I always loved comedy. I always, I just think there's a certain, when you see one man or one woman, nowadays, thank God, one woman, um, standing at a microphone with nothing. And I mean, it may be in the older days, more often it was that that material had been prepared for them. But as that moment's there, they're standing there, and nowadays, very often they've written it. Anyway. And there is you, them and the mic, and there's a room full of people. And they bring joy and extraordinary levels of joy and excitement to that. And to me, it's magical. It still is to this day. It always has been magical. So I knew I wanted to be around comedians. And all through my youth, I'd gone. My dad was a producer in the entertainment department. So I spent a lot of time at Shepherd's Bush, the old Shepherd's Bush Empire, which was the BBC TV theatre, watching people like, Ben Hill, I have to say, Dave King, Charlie Chester, Ted Ray. I used to go and watch them rehearse. Occasionally, I'd stay in the evening to watch. I just loved them. I used to listen to the radio shows around the horn and beyond our Ken and having a clue. Were there any people that you admire growing up that you then saw at that stage and like, oh, I want to come and tell well, them? Well, like, people like Charlie Chester and Ted Ray had passed, uh, uh, retired, not passed away necessarily, but <laughs> retired. I tell you one experience I do very much remember of that. But when I was about 15, 16, whatever it was, my parents took me to see Beyond the Fringe. Now, Beyond the Fringe was the definitive mm-hmm. comedy show for my generation. 
must have been in the West End about 63. I think it started in Edinburgh in 62, maybe, and it came to the West End in 63. Absolute sensation here, and then went to New York, sensation in New York. And that was Peter Cook, Dudley Moore, Alan Bennett, Jonathan Miller. And they were gods to me. And I remember going to see that show with my parents. And all those cliches that you talk about, I was literally slipping out of my seat with laughter. I had a stitch and I was crying. I mean, all those things you say about comedy. You know, talk about Blow the Bloody Doors Off. I mean, it just was everything that you couldn't talk about, just parodied. And, and you know, when you see Peter Cook there doing Harold Macmillan with the nuclear button and I press it or I don't press it, depending on how I feel. You know, And, and, and you think that Macmillan went and saw that and sat in the audience and watched it. <laughs> it was sensational. I knew then, I thought to myself, I've, this is what I've got to do. And years later, I got to work with Peter quite a lot. And when we were doing Saturday Live, Peter actually hosted one of the live shows for us. And we went round, a bloke called David Bell and myself, who was my boss at London Weekend, where we made Saturday Live. Uh, he knew Alan very well. And we went round to tea in his wonderful uh, house, you know, where Lady in the Van is recorded up in um, Mornington Crescent up there. And we had tea with Alan and lovely tea and a long chat about the one. <laughs> and then he said, why have you come to see me? And I said, well, would you like to? And he said... Not a chance, dear boy. If that's what you've come for, I'm so sorry. Absolutely no chance. And it was just lovely to have tea with him anyway. And then in the evening, as we were waiting to go on on Peter's show, I told him this story. And he said, bloody sensible. I don't know what the hell I'm doing here. What a good answer. <laughs> so, yeah, so I did get to work with two of my absolute gods. Sadly, not Dudley Moore uh, and certainly not Jonathan, who was on a different level by then. You found that you were sort of, as you say, better at sort of organising things and so forth. I believe we discovered that uh, you tried a bit of stand-up early on and you tried writing uh, your own sitcom as well based on a flat share that you were in at, at university? No, not quite. I did try both performing and writing, but in a very protective way. So when I was in the theatre, I did do a bit of acting. Um, and I had a terribly embarrassing experience because we were doing... I was at the Marlowe in Canterbury and they were doing uh, School for Scandal, a Sheridan drama. And there's a big drunk scene in the middle of the play and I was playing the leader of these drunken revelers and we had to sing a song and I said to the director David Cossey I can't sing David and he said don't be silly you're supposed to be drunk you know it doesn't matter anybody can sing a bit and I said honestly I can't sing right come on, let's all have a go and I did about two lines and he stopped me and said you really can't sing can you this is gonna... okay what we'll do is all do it as a chorus and Paul you just mime don't you sing at all so you know I, I knew that I'd made the right decision I wasn't a good enough performer but I've always loved performing I love doing the warm-ups before shows not the big warm-up uh, mm. but you know the introduction warm-up which I think is a very good thing for a director to do anyway because it gives you a very immediate sense of what the audience is like and all audiences are different and when you're up in the gallery cutting the speed at which the audience is going to react and the generosity mm. of the reaction it's very helpful to know so I like to go on first and I did a bit of after-dinner speaking, and I always wanted to be funny, but, you know, the fact is I wasn't good enough. I certainly never made any money on the circuit as an after-dinner speaker, so I, I knew I wasn't a performer. And then writing, when we were doing Three of a Kind, we took uh, gags from everywhere, you know, anybody could write in. And I wrote a couple of gags then, and then I edited the book when we put the book of Three of a Kind together, and I slipped a couple more in there. But I knew I couldn't do it. sitcom thing was uh, when Rick and Lisa and Ben bought me the script for Young Ones, the very original handwritten on a four script i immediately recognized they told me it was coming and i couldn't wait to read it i'd lived in a flat in extra i went to extra i'd live in a flat at 40 pennsylvania road with a gang of people who are still my friends to this day some of them and we'd lived exactly that lifestyle and so when i read that script i said to them well i could you know I could, this is absolutely i know exactly what you're talking about mm. and in fact the design and the original uh, we ended up filming in bristol but that was only because we were looking kind of around extra way and the look of the flat and everything was exactly based on mm. our flat. And then Rick and they said, well, that's our flat. You know, I mean, like all student flats, but... Everyone who watches The Young Ones rec recognises well, their recognize students living in it. recognise living in it. It's only a very slightly exaggerated version, of, you know, drawing the biro mark on the milk and, and, and writing your name on the eggs and all that stuff. So um, I very much recognised it. But no, I wish, I wish I had the school because I think, as I say, I, do, I think the gift to make people laugh is such an important gift, particularly in this fucked up world that we're living in at the moment. My God, if you can't laugh, you're gonna shoot yourself, aren't you? And, and God, do we need some comedy. And unfortunately, I don't think we're terribly well served at the moment with the best of comedy. It's in the slight doldrums, it seems to me at the moment. But you know, the, the gift of that release and the importance of that ability to question authority and to, to say, hang on a minute, you're being really stupid here. 
is so important. There's a huge gift in music. If you can just sit down at a piano, whether you're Elton John or my brother, mm. and just play a few riffs mm-hmm. and everybody starts singing, I think that's such a brilliant thing and I wish I could do that. Yeah, but comedy's not lauded the same level as music, and wrongly com- so, I think. Well, I, I tell you why I think the reason is because it's not so universal. I mean, if you're Elton yeah. John, everybody gets it. If you're Rick Mayo, you know, genius that he is on the same level to me as, as Elton in his field. But Americans don't get it. Uh, Australians get it, New Zealanders get it, but Europeans don't. Yeah, so but the young ones, like, lit a fire for me when I was a kid. My dad hated it and was just like, what's this stupid rubbish you're watching? <laughs> well, that's exactly like, what we wanted. That's so exactly angry. What we, yeah, just, we wanted yeah. nobody else to like yeah. it. You know, that was the whole point. We didn't want anybody else to say, oh, that's mm. really good. And I just, come, I was still doing the two Ronnies when we did the first series of, and by the way, all due respect to the two Ronnies who taught me everything I know about putting comedy on television and were very, very good personal friends, Ronnie Corbett particularly. I was, they just did the show about his, about his private films last week on mm. ITV and he was such a lovely, lovely man, a lovely family and they, we were very close to them. So I don't disparage that at all, but uh, that was a show that you wanted 15 million people to watch mm. and all that. It is a funny thing. So, so the two Ronnies, you know, 15, 20 million sometimes, major primetime Saturday night. Uh, and we issued a sketchbook around the same time as we issued the Young Ones book. The Young Ones book sold three million. The two Ronnie's book sold less than a million. It's a different thing. You know, it's mm. a, if it was Young Ones, you had to have everything to do with the Young Ones. Mm. If it was two Ronnie's, yeah, they're brilliant on Saturday night. I may even go and see them at the Palladium, but I don't want to buy a book of it. I saw you say in an interview that when, when you were doing that, you sort of took a lot of the crew and the people from the two Ronnie's to go and make the Young Ones. Were the actual, were the, were the two Ronnie's themselves aware of what you were doing? And were they supportive of it? Ronnie Corbett was always a massive, massive comedy fan. Mm. And it's fairly well known. He had a house up in uh, on the golf links just outside Edinburgh. And every year he used to go to the Fringe mm. and look at people. And he first told me to go and see Harry Hill. First time I saw Harry Hill, Ronnie had recommended him. First time I saw Rob Brydon, Ronnie had recommended him. He was a huge supporter of, of, of young comedians. RB, not so much. And in fact, we had a falling out with RB on, um, would it have been three of a kind? Yes, we were kind. But when we were first making it, the, the wonderful thing about the BBC was at that time, and God, we just threw it away so carelessly. It was the best studio outside of Hollywood. It, it had the best visual effects, the best makeup, the best wardrobe. It had the best gram library in the world. It had the best sound effects library in the world. You, you couldn't have wanted anywhere else better to do something as difficult and as challenging as mm. Young Ones or Red Dwarf or indeed Bottom. And the reason that Bottom stayed at the BBC and wasn't made by... Nolgate Television or by Rick and Aid Productions Limited was because they wanted access, just like French and Saunders never went on their own, because they wanted that BBC backup. Mm. Um, so I was lucky enough, because it was two Ronnies, you got the best camera crew, the best vision mix, the best sound guys, and people like Roger Fenner and Mike McCarthy and Laurie Taylor and Ed Wood and the editor, and all these people came across because I managed to grab them for, for young ones, uh, and then they went on to do Red Dwarf and, mm. and other shows like that. So, so yes, so... Yes, yeah, so Ronnie was always very encouraging, Ronnie C. Ronnie B more tended to think that it was a bit scurrilous and a bit toilet wall. And yep. and then we did a parody of a two Ronnie's end big music item. On Not The Nine O'Clock News? Uh, it was done on Not The Nine O'Clock News, yeah. that's right. The, Thank you for, telling, for reminding me, that's the, exactly what happened. The two ninnies. Uh, the two ninnies, that's yeah. right. And um, do you want to know the story of that? Oh, well, I know that Ronnie Barker was annoyed. I, I've, I've, I've got a question about this for later on, but I'm happy to ask it now. I wondered if, if you thought it was fair game. When we did the two Ronnies, we did these big music items, and, and Barker wrote some of them. Barker wrote a lot of the two Ronnies, but he didn't write that many of the music items. But occasionally he'd do a Top of the Pops parody or something like that. And this one uh, show, I was directing the Ronnies by then, um, we were doing a Top of the Pops parody. And he said to me, Paul, you know all these young people, because Ronnie Hazelhurst was the BBC in-house MD. And Ronnie used to do all the orchestrations and, and conduct the orchestra for these parodies. And he said to me, before we need a younger l- l- sound, you know, we need somebody who knows how these songs that we're parodying are made. <laughs> and I was working with Peter Bruce at the time, who of course done the title track for the young ones. I said, well, I'll get Peter, Peter will do it. And Peter came in and uh, met with Ronnie and Ronnie gave him the songs, which is how it normally worked. Peter wrote the music and, uh, and that was it. And they did it. And, um, and then Peter said, so do I get a credit? And Ronnie said, no, no, I wrote the songs. You know, you just put the tune to it. And Peter was upset and, and you know, moot point that should have been sorted out before probably, but Peter was upset. And so Peter subsequently wrote and instigated and wrote the music for Not The Nine Sketch. Right. And Ronnie was really very, very upset. 
Yeah. And actually wrote to the DG complaining. And, yeah. Did um, did Ronnie Corbett sort of take it in a bit more? No, Ronnie, Ronnie, no? Wasn't, oh, wasn't, Ronnie wasn't bothered. No. I mean, you've worked with some incredible comedy pairings over the years. The two Ronnies, Harry H. Corbett and Wilford Bramble, Craig well, Charles I did, and I did Barry. See, you, know, you say the bottom flat's like Stepto. <laughs> I, I actually <laughs> AFM'd, which is the, the level that you put out all the props mm. and do all that stuff on the last series of, mm. of Stepto. What yeah. was that like working on the final series of Stepto and Son? Well, I tell you, the wonderful thing about working with Septo and Son was working with Gordon Simpson, you know, mm. the, the legendary kings, the Absolutely. original, yeah. after Muir and Norden, the, the godfathers of mm. British comedy, really. And those four between them, and really more Gordon and Simpson, they're the reason that British television comedy is completely different from American comedy. American comedy is gag-driven, and, you know, in such a competitive com- commercial market, you have to have a gag a page, if not two or three, and... I've been lucky enough to sit in American writing rooms and watch American shows being produced. And they're driven by that kind of, if you like, almost Jewish stand-up shtick that was done around the music halls and the vaudeville halls. Gorton and Simpson were really drama writers, and mm. Steptoe is really a drama with... It's just a drama where there's no, no story development. <laughs> they're, they're both locked into this endless uh, agony. That style of character comedy which you now see absolutely taken to extreme in the in the real comms where there really are no jokes at all and it's all just based on observational character work. That was instigated by Gordon Simpson. I think if they hadn't been as influential as they were at the very beginning of comedy with Hancock and and then with Steptoe, we wouldn't necessarily have gone in that direction. Mm. I mean, the duo, the comedy duo, would obviously Rick and Aid had their influences through Gordon and Simpson, Simpson's work. What do you think it is about the comedy duo that makes for such a perfect chemistry in comedy? Well, I think laughing, comedy is, is a social habit, you know, it's why I think it's so important. So, so it always amazes me that one person sitting on their own in a room can actually write any, anything funny at all, because how do you know? Mm. Uh, and yet, clearly, over the years, many, many people have succeeded in doing mm. that very successfully. But, you know, Marks and Grands and Clement Lafrenet and Grant Naylor and, and Rick and Aid, so many of them, whether writers or performers... Because they make each other laugh. Mm. And, and you, what you notice with the two Ronnies or, or Rick and Aid or French and Saunders, if one of them doesn't think it's funny, it's out. I mean, there's never a debate. Oh, can't we? Don't you think? It's, no. If, if we're not both laughing at it, it's out. Mm. Whether that's in rehearsal or reading a script or whatever. Because if you can't make the other person laugh, you know, then what chance have you got? So yeah, You've got that sounding board there. You've got that away. sounding board, yeah. that constant sounding board. And I think to sit at a typewriter on your own... And just type into the air, into the ether, and then look at that and think, "Oh, that's funny." I know, no, that's exactly right. I don't need another line there. That is, how do you do that without another person in the room to do it mm. with you? I always thought Ben Elton and Richard Curtis had the great system for Blackadder, didn't they? When uh, the, their rule was, if one of them took out a joke, the other one wasn't allowed to put it back in, and that way you could only ever add new stuff. So there was no sort of fights about, "Well, I want well, to that, keep this." In in essence, that's how all the great comedy pairings work. As I say, whether performance or mm. With the two Ronnies, we used to sit down on every Monday morning. We used to record on Sunday, Monday back in the rehearsal room. And we'd read all through the scripts for, for the upcoming week, including the first cut of the news items. So there'd be about 30 or 40 news items. And it's just a very simple rule. They read them mm. around the table. There was 10 or 12 people around the table. And it didn't matter what we thought. They put a tick or a cross. And that was the end of it. Two ticks yeah. in, one cross out. And it's the same. And Ben actually is the most collaborative and the most flexible one of the most flexible writers I've ever worked with. They've devised this wonderful system with him and Richard where they where they wrote backwards and forwards. Whereas with uh, with Rick, he, it was more... Because Rick brought him in, Rick and Lisa brought... And it was more kind of his work got edited by Rick and Lisa. Yeah, I've heard a few stories of... like They, they were genuinely were friends, but Rick was a little bit bully-like to Ben, but in a playful way, like, come on, squirt, all this well, sort of thing, right? Ben, ben had been two years below Rick and Aid mm. at uni. And so when Ben got to uni and was writing a play a week, you know, um, serious and comic, uh, and Rick and Aid with the superstars, because, I mean, Rick and Aid definitely, mm. 20th Century Coyote at, at Manchester Uni was like the superstars. And I think probably there was the kind of <laughs> master and servant relationship that <laughs> uh, that a little bit carried over, a little bit carried But, I mean, Ben's his own man. He can look after himself. Always spoke very highly of Rick and, and uh, what he brought to his material and what he did for him. And Rick was well aware of what, Ben gave to him, but um, occasionally Rick would jokingly say, "Oh, snotty nose," or you know, <laughs> "Oik, you've just come up." Where it was a kind of running gag, really. 
So on the two runners, how did you manage to go from floor runner to director? Was that a sort of fairly typical uh, trajectory? Well, no, I was just really lucky. I mean, the, 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 the way the BBC worked, it really was dead man's shoes. And I was incredibly lucky. I went up very quick. So I went in as a runner. I was lucky enough to get invited onto the two runnies as a runner. And you make yourself as useful as you can. I just love being there. And so I really... And then something happened, somebody moved up and they wanted an AFM. And so then you're in the team. You're not just doing it. The, floor, the floor assistant only turns up on the studio and just does the studios. The AFM's on the team right through the whole shoot. So I got on the team uh, and I did a couple of scenes of that. And then I went off to be a vision mixer. And unbelievably, the vision mixer who did the two Ronnies for some reason wasn't available. And they said, oh, well, let Paul do it. You know? I mean, why would they let a trainee, almost trainee vision mixer? Yeah. Uh, and the truth was because they knew exactly what they were doing and you just had to go one, two, one, two, three, you know. So, um, and I did that and then I I started to edit stuff. And just, so I, I just was so lucky. Terry Hughes, who had run it all, all my time when I was a junior, got promoted head of department. So there was a gap there. And, mm-hmm. and I just stepped up and, and I didn't work with them for about two or three years after I started there. And I only stayed there 11 years on my first go. So that middle seven or eight years, I literally did it every grade up to being the exec producer in the director and producer at the end and as I say I just learned everything I knew about it I mean it was but it was very lucky you didn't normally get that chance no do you think that's a good uh, way for someone to become a producer ultimately to do all of the jobs uh, to sort of get to that position I think we were incredibly lucky and it's one of the many things about the loss of the BBC and we have lost the BBC Mm. as, as it was when I knew it but I mean, do you think that prepares someone? Do you think that makes someone a better producer because they yes. know how all the jobs are done? Yes. Yeah, yeah, yes. yeah. I absolutely do. I know you had the chance to do that at the BBC. I mean, in yeah. fact, you didn't only have the chance to do it. There's the only way to do it. You d- they didn't bring producers in in those days right. who were already a producer somewhere else. Okay. So if you wanted to be a producer, you went up and then when you became the first assistant or the production manager, they called them then, but first, you, yeah. you went into the department. So at that point, I had to choose. I'd done... I'd quite enjoyed my sport as well at the BBC. So I'd done quite a lot on Grandstand and Sports Night with Coleman on a Wednesday night. Uh, I kind of knew it was a comedy. I was a little bit, there was a moment where I thought, oh, I might, might be. And then jobs came up in the entertainment department, Bill Cotton's department. And I remember being interviewed by Bill. And I'd known Bill since I was a kid because my dad had worked alongside Bill. Mm. And I love Bill Cotton. I mean, genius of television, beautiful, beautiful man. I was interviewed by Bill and Terry Hughes, who had produced the Ronnie's, uh, he knew me, and I got the job. And um, then you're in entertainment, then. So that now, yeah. What memories do you have of working with Harry H. Corbett and Wilfred Bramble? Fun memories. I mean, it was strange because Steptoe had been off for some time. I can't remember how long. It was suddenly, let's do it again. In fact, it was the only time it was shot in colour. It's been colourised since with a lovely, lovely comedy producer called Dougie Argent. And in those days, the producer directed, and so Dougie was producer director. He hadn't been the original. Straight. So it's all a bit kind of new and they hadn't been there for some time. In a way, you know, you come, they had been the biggest thing on television, probably. Mm. Certainly the biggest comedy. And now a bit later on, they sort of quite weren't. And, yeah. and it was a bit flat, maybe compared to what they had been. Wilfred was a lovely, lovely old bloke. And, and you know, the disgrace of what happened to him with the police on, mm. on Shepherd's Green was just atrocious. Blighted a part of his life, you know. Harry had this thing that uh, he was a big Shakespearean actor. He was a great actor. Uh, he, he'd never loved the fact that he was so much better known for, for uh, Steptoe than he was for, for any of his other work. And, of course, admitting that and coming back later in, in life when he probably said internally to himself, that's it, I'm done, I'm now. Mm. I've got so it was, it was maybe a little bit more subdued. For me, it was an absolute treat. I was still quite young. I was still quite new at the BBC. It was lovely working with Harry and, and with Wilfred. I loved Dougie and I loved working on his team. But for me, it was Gorton Simpson just sitting watching mm. Ray and Alan. And they became sort of friends. And I used to see them afterwards. I had lunch with them occasionally. And God, they were lovely men, the two of them. They were just such wonderful, wonderful, talented men who shaped the way that we do television and comedy in this country. Mm, absolutely. Yeah. And you'd grown up then watching Steptoe in the early years on television? Yes, yeah, I watched Steptoe. I watched Likely Lads. I watched, of course, Python in, mm. in, a, in a different part of the forest. Um, and you got to work with the Pythons yeah. as well, is that right? I got to work with Graham because he and Barry Cryer wrote a sitcom that Ray Corbett did called Prince of Denmark. I worked with John a few times. Uh, Terry Jones did uh, a guest appearance on um, Young Ones. Um, I haven't worked with Eric. Uh, I see, because there's an incorrect um, thing then that you worked on Python in your catalogue, no? No, the only connection I would claim with Python was that in those days, 
in the 60s, the BBC was such a bloody fantastic place to work. And in the same way that when I just joined the BBC, I used to, as a runner, when I used to go in on days off and watch the Python, because the Python mm-hmm. to be in, watch the Python show rehearse, just go and sit in the stalls because wow. you had the pass, you could walk in. <laughs> and they were kind of like an alien satellite. They were out in, the, there was a car park at the back of the scenery block. And they, that show was produced, as far as I remember, from these caravans in the back of or static homes or whatever, right. in, in this car park at the back. It was kind of not, you know, they're not really in the department at all. We don't really know. What they're. And when we got to do the young ones, we kind of felt a bit the same. We mm. kind of felt like nobody wanted to talk to us or know anything about it, really. Yeah. And that was very, and talk about with Bottom, I mean, it was even more so. But with Young Ones, it was kind of, well, you know, it seems to be popular. Young Ones only got commissioned because Channel 4 picked up those people. My, my, my old colleague, Mike Bolland, mm. I'd shown it at a youth conference at the BBC and about a month later, Mike had gone to Channel 4 as Commissioner of Youth Entertainment and the bastard nicked my bloody yeah. pilot and, and uh, signed all these people up. And I remember the day that Jeremy Isaacs announced the big launch announcement of Channel 4 and there was Five Go Mad in Dorset right in mm. the middle of the first night. And I got this phone call saying, aren't they those blokes that are in your pilot? This pilot that had you know, been shot and, oh my God, and put that in the basement. Yeah. Oh, do you think you can get it together again yeah. in time to before Channel Four goes on the air? And this was in the spring, in in, uh, in the autumn. So we shot it over the summer, and of course they went out with the one Five Go Mad, and we went out with a whole series of young ones. So um, you were hurriedly commissioning five scripts to get them out as quickly, and as we were possible. desperately yeah. saying to because they, you know, they didn't write five scripts on spec. I mean, yeah. they'd written the pilot. I never told them that it was a definite no, but I mean, I'd been told, you know, mm. hey, we've got worse. We've got. He wasn't the executive making the decision, but one of the executives in the department said to me, "I've got bigger flops than that in the in the vault. Don't worry, <laughs> nobody will ever, <laughs> nobody will know about it. Yeah. Be all right." Have they sort of provisionally started shaping ideas for the rest of the series? I think they always had. You know, they were they were very creative people, and so I think when they were writing the first script, they had a million ideas they couldn't uh-huh. get into the first script. So. There were ideas around for sure. And my God, they wrote these, um, th- those five, they wrote them very, very quickly. Ben is a very quick writer. Ben's one of the quickest writers I've ever known. And Rick and Lisa were very integral to the writing of Young Ones as opposed to Filthy Rich, which Ben wrote on his own, really. But Ben was the driver, you know, Ben Ben was the bloke who sat the typewriter and got the words down. And so they wrote them very quickly. And without much editing, we went, we pretty well shot them as they came off the Press, really. What are your sort of recollections of the first time, if you can, you know, uh, if, if if this is easily recallable and it hasn't sort of turned into the stuff of legend, when you first saw Rick and Aid at the comedy store? Well, I remember it very well because what had happened was th- this comedy boom in the in the 80s started in America and uh, in Los Angeles, places like the Improv and the, um, the comedy store. Mm. Peter had gone over, Peter Rosengard, the, the entrepreneur who was actually insurance salesman, had been in Los Angeles, seen the comedy store and thought, oh, I must do that. And he mm. opened up the comedy store in the Nelgwen. And I didn't go to the first night, but within, but it, it, it got a buzz immediately. Time Out was just launching at the time and Time yeah. Out started writing it up. Evening Standard gave it a very good write-up. So within about 10 days, I think, uh, I thought I've got to go and see this. I was a junior, but I hadn't directed anything at the time. I was mm. a director's school, I think, actually. BBC in those days actually taught you to be a director. Fantastic. How uh, old were you at this time? 33, 32, 33. So I thought, I must go and see this. And it, the comedy store was, I think, probably Friday and Saturday or Saturday and Sunday at the Nell Gwyn Club, which was a striptease club, just off Wardour Street. Uh, and so the first time I went, I was walking up Wardour Street and I was very lucky when I was a kid because of what my dad did and my mum was very liberal-minded. Even at 16, 17, I was kind of out in the West End and watching stuff, and that was 63, yeah. 64, you know, and mm-hmm. so I was up at the Crawdaddy watching The Stones and I was at the Marquee... And then I went into that first night at the comedy store and I came out thinking, that's that's the same thing. It's not going to be the global thing that 60s music was because it's not music, but it's going to be as big. In, I knew, I knew when I sat there and watched them. And it was rough as old arseholes and you know, nobody knew what they were doing. They were shambling around the stage and throwing beer at each other. And it was a complete mess, really. That's but, part of it, right? But these these and the crowd was abs- you to, to get to the Nelgun, you had to go up in this rickety old lift that took ages to go up <laughs> and down. God knows if there'd been a fire. <laughs> and you were about four people at a time in the lift. So it looked really exciting because the queue was right down Wardle right, Street right, because yeah. it took you an hour to get in yeah. because of this bloody lift. Anyway, you got in there and it was it was abs- you know, it was like the marquee used to be in the 60s in the music. It was low and sweaty and hot and boozy and and I just absolutely loved it. Alexi came out and you know, Alexi was comparing by that time. Rick and A did a bit as Coyote. Peter and Richard did a bit as Outer Limits. 
Then they did a bit together, the four of them. Mm. Tony Allen was there. Um, Had you heard their names before? I'd kind of seen them in the in the in the, some of the reviews had mentioned some okay. of these names. Keith Allen was the big breakout mm-hmm. star. Keith was the one that everybody was raving about, and he was. I mean, Rick and Keith particularly. You don't have to be a genius to realise that these are very talented, very charismatic, talented people. Mm. You just have to look at them. You know, I mean, they just have it. And I mean, mm-hmm. Rick was just a sex god, and I, you know, I mean, you just had to walk into a room, and you were all swooning. And and Keith was the same. He had absolute balls out confidence and I love Keith I mean I I really really he's a great actor now but then he was just a wild boy really and uh, he had become the hot hot thing within three four months it was like the hottest to get in town and I went down there one night there was a table marked out reserved at the very front of the stage which is very unusual at the comedy store you know I mean it was not like that at all after the show had started to everybody's annoyance this group of rather loud people turned up rather loud fashionistas turned up and sat in this table and started making quite a noise and and this one bloke was saying see this one's very good he's very good and this went on and people were getting really annoyed uh and then Keith came out and they started doing it in front of uh, and Keith said this what the fuck are you have you come here for the what, what, nobody's come here to see you shut the fuck up <laughs> and the bloke said don't talk to me like that I made you and he said what he said I made you I did that right up for you in the evening standard he said oh I'm so sorry I didn't realise that was you he picked this pint of beer up and tipped it over his head. this guy had quite a nice suit on. tipped it over his head and he said I'll fucking make you fuck off out of it I'm not, I'm not doing it fuck off out of it you can just fuck off and he made this bloke completely ripped him apart um and I just loved it. I just loved yeah. that. Um, <laughs> to do that to a reviewer. To like do that, that to a reviewer. He did incredible. not. Oh, I tell you, a good that. review as well. Mm. Yeah. I just love the chutzpah of, of Keith. You know, he's got a persona about it. And Rick had that same. Mm. He was going to be a star whatever happened. You know, there's no question about it. So you've, you see this group of performers. You know there's something there. You're, you're working at the BBC. You've yet to produce or direct anything. That's right. How difficult a pitch is this to the BBC we understand that you wanted quite a few episodes of Boom Boom Out of the Lights and there was a bit of a compromise in that what happened was I, I left the club that night having um, thought to myself this is going to be something some of these people are going to be big breakout stars uh, and annoyingly I had just finished the director's course in fact I remember now so I couldn't otherwise I'd just done it as my exercise because at the director's course you get to do an exercise and I hadn't so I went to my boss a bloke called Robin Nash in the entertainment department don't forget not in the comedy department and I said to him Robin there's this uh, thing happening this new comedy breaking through I'd really like to to bring it to TV and do a show randomly and madly he said to me oh okay, I think I know what you mean I was at a cafe the other night he said I saw a show there it's actually done by five girls who are in the BBC drama series Angels, which was a hospital series. Mm. And these five women uh, in the downtime in the summer had put on this show about a broken love affair, essentially five aspects of a broken love affair. Uh, And he said, and I really like that. And I was wondering what to do with it. And he said, actually, and this is how the BBC used to work, we've got a bit of an opportunity because there's a studio being booked for something Mm. and we can't do it. The bloke's dropped out or whatever it was. And I've got a two-day studio stand in about a month's time. Why don't you go and have a look at George, it was called. Why don't you go and have a look at George and see if you like it? And and then you can do one-on-one night. You can do whatever you want on your night. So I said, great, okay. I went and saw this. It could not have been more different. I mean, it was lovely, but it was a rather American-style cabaret, kind of knowing, you know, as I say, five aspects of a love affair written by an American woman called Susan. And it was good. It was good, but it wasn't anything like the same thing. But it was set in a cabaret venue. Yeah. So I went back to Rob and said, "Yeah, no, that's fine. I'll, I'll do that the first night, and I'll do what I want the second night." <laughs> so we set up this um, this nightclub in a studio, and I needed a linking device for my show. I mean, George, we just recorded it. It was fine. We needed a linking device, and I was also watching a lot of music at the time, and I loved the Paul Jones band. He'd just set up his blues band. So I asked them, "Would they link it?" And then we took their song "Boom Boom Out Go the Lights" because it was just a good. Mm. cut to black and go wherever you want we did that first show Robin looked at the two pieces didn't really think George had worked and you couldn't do it cabaret you either needed to put it with proper sets and costumes and do it properly or it didn't really work it was a good piece in the theatre but it didn't work on TV and uh, we looked at my thing and they they did not know what and I have to tell you I recorded over two hours and I scraped together 28 minutes. Really? I mean, because it was so bloody amateur and it was my first big thing. Yeah. I didn't know how to control any of it or tell them to stop it. And I remember 
I remember a comic who shall be nameless who wasn't in the final cut walking on and immediately going into stuff. Well, we're not allowed to say stuff, you know, we can't do Bourne Bill Boulevard. And, and, and the guys in the gallery, I'm directing, sitting there, and the guys in the gallery looking at me, should we stop tape? Or, you know, <laughs> what's the point? And I said, no, no, it'll be all right, it'll be all right. And P- actually, Keith Allen rescued that whole thing. He came on and did the SAS. If you've ever seen the show, there's a, the SAS siege, mm. yeah. uh, the Iraqi embassy had happened just that week. And he burst on the stage with a balaclava <laughs> helmet and some stun grenades, <laughs> and the place went mad. And he did a very funny, quick s- sketch on the siege. But I was pushed to get 28, 29 yeah. minutes out of it that was usable. Right, um, right. So we did that, and it went out, and it got, I th- it got very poor, uh, not viewing figures it wouldn't get good viewing figures but it got a very poor reaction right appreciation right. index but you managed to get another one about you well later. what happened was these people then you know there was talk about them and mm. people were noticing them and actually amazingly somebody somewhere chris dunkley in the financial times at one point gave us a very good review i can't remember if it was the first young ones i think it might have been actually anyway people were sort of talking and so robin came back to me f- several months later and said you know what do you want to have another go now you you know they've maybe learned a bit more and that was the wonderful yeah. thing about the BBC at that time. You know, as I say, it was like Python over in this yeah. shed in the car yeah. park. And we were, and then eventually Jeff and I decamped over the road altogether and we did a lot of shows, Carrots Lib particularly, from a, right over there. We didn't feel like we were part of the BBC at all. We didn't report back into them. That show was going out live. We never discussed it with them. We just did it. Did you feel like what you were doing with Boom Boom and then later with The Young Ones was a sort of counter to the other kind of comedy that was on television where it was either the comedians with Northern Comics doing mother-in-law jokes or Oxbridge Review type stuff. Do you, did you feel like we were sort of, you're sort of deliberately trying to get, move away from that kind of thing? Well, I think there definitely was. There was a movement against that and that's, you know, what the alternative was. But I was slightly ambivalent about that because, you know, I'd come from that tradition. Right. And indeed, let's be absolutely clear, Rick and Ben and Aid particularly, massive, massive fans of Peter Cook, Dave Allen, mm. Hancock. Uh, you know, they were very, tr- Noel Coward, Ben's a huge Noel Coward uh, scholar and fan you know these guys know their heritage they know yeah. where they're coming from but there was maybe a little bit of a kind of golf club dinner jacket circuit around if you like mm-hmm. and certainly their performing circuit this this burgeoning club comedy club circuit first of all in london and then spreading out through manchester and birmingham bristol and places was definitely the antithesis of the working men's club with the dinner jacket and the mother-in-law jokes. And certainly people like Bernard Manning, just to take a random example that I can think of immediately, were not perceived as being helpful to the state of the nation. It was, yeah. it was the Thatcher years, there was a lot of dissension within the nation. And people like Charlie Williams was felt to be being, who's a black comedian who appeared on the, the Comedians, the, the Granada show. And, you know, was successful in, in that show. And, you know, we've got a black comedian on, what are you talking about? it was felt he was kind of being used as a patsy. Yeah. And so there was some anger. And I remember on, never mind young ones, on Three of a Kind, which was Lenny Henry, Tracy Ullman and, and, uh, and David Copperfield. When we did the big outreach meeting at the very beginning of setting that show up, we, we said to like, the three artists spoke to them. And between the four of us, we said to them, we don't want that kind of material. You know, that's not what we're looking for. We're looking for something a bit new and a bit fresh and a bit different. Mm. And so there was a conscious attempt to do different things. I have got the hugest respect and admiration and I loved working on the two Ronnies and I don't believe that the two Ronnies was in that vein. But Ronnie Corbett used to play golf and do the golf circuit and so on and Ronnie was the most lovely man and the most encouraging supporter of new comedy and the most interested and inquiring mind about how comedy worked. But they were perceived as this big Saturday night mob and yeah. you know, all very successful. And these were the punk, you know, the, I mean, Aid is a massive punk music. Yeah, band. Yeah. These, this was the punk music as opposed to the concept album yeah. and, and Eric Clapton playing 15-minute obligatos. It was, it was the, the, the young upstarts taking on the old guard kind of thing. Well, it was a little bit. I mean, you know, Python had been there first in, yeah. to an extent and, and done that. And they were huge fans of Python as well. And I think maybe we a little bit too... You know, the press loved to do that. I, I remember at the time it was all happening, John Lloyd was also at the BBC who, who produced at that time, not the nine, and went on to do Blackadder and so on. And John said to me, just as it was all breaking, he said, do you want to have lunch? I, I didn't know him that well. And I loved John. I became good friends with him. And he said to me, Paul, look, i tell you what's going to happen. They're going to try and set up a competition. The press are going to follow this through. We're the new young kids on the block. We're all anti all that stuff. But they'll try and set up Red Brick 
yeah. uh, Oxbridge and I'll be the Oxbridge and you'll be the... And he said, let's just agree between us never to play that game. If you have a hit, I'll be thrilled. If I have a hit, you'll be thrilled. Yeah. We'll just all celebrate it together. It's all about the funny. And that was a very wise thing of John and we played it that way ever since and I've loved most of what John's done and, and he's always been kind about what I've done. So it was a very sensible thing to say because I think it could have got out of hand. I never saw it as that really. I just saw, you know, funny's funny. It, you don't start analysing it too much. If it's mm. funny, it's funny. So John said to me, you know, let's not make this into a kind of red brick Oxbridge thing. And of course the silly thing is that they all got on really well together. So famously, uh, Stephen and you and Emma did a BAFTA winning uh, episode of, yeah. uh, of Young Ones, the University Challenge episode, uh, Bambi. Rick and Aid interrupted a Stephen and Hugh sketch on Saturday Live, famously. Uh, and they got on really well together and worked really well together. So it was never really an issue, but it could have become one. Hmm. Wasn't Alexi Sale uh, saw a talk with you, him, Nigel Planner and stuff where it, like, yeah, yeah. you're turning up and saying, oh, Stephen, that's it. No, I don't want to be involved then or something. <laughs> Half jokingly. Yeah, that was... Um, Alexi tells that story. I remember, actually, I remember the night you're talking about it, yeah. the NFI, yeah. Alexi's relationship with Young Ones was, was just at one remove, so he wrote his own stuff. He would just, we'd tell him what the plot, or Rick and Lisa and Ben would tell him what the plot was, and he'd say, oh, I, I tell you what, I'll be a train driver whose bandit was holding up the train, or I'll be, apart from the landlord, uh, I'll, I'll come in there and I'll do this and I'll do that. Uh, so he used to really almost phone it in. he may be coming once in rehearsal, so he was kind of just... You know, How did that? Was that always intended? Or was he kind yes, of they, asked, they wanted Alexi to be in it. Mm. Um, and the obvious idea, he, he clearly wasn't one of the students. So the, the fairly obvious idea to come up with, he, he was the landlord. And mm. so they wrote Mr. Belofsky. But he didn't want that to be a permanent written in character. He wanted to do his own shtick, if you like. And so that was the kind of deal. We'll write you a storyline or maybe we'll write you some lines even, but you can kind of improvise around it. So the, the famous scene with the clocks, you know, when he comes in, that's yeah. Alexi's additional Did he get line. additional credit line for it? Yes, he it got just... additional material credit. I'm sure. pretty sure he gets additional credit. So when when we were doing the Bambi episode, some meeting somewhere, we must have said, oh, and, and you know, Snockbridge College is going to be played by um, uh, Stephen, you and Emma. He said, I thought we were the alternative comics. I never thought. <laughs> I but I mean, he didn't say it with any malice. Or he... Sure. So I remember as a kid, not really understanding the Alexi Sale kind of inputs it. Like, because at the end credit stuff, you get the silhouette of all five of them. I'm like, why is he there? I would well, think. Well, he saw he was, but he, he is was, one of the young ones. He's he, in every yeah, no, episode. He was. He was very much part of the initial sale. All those publicity shots and so on that I've still got somewhere and there's always Alexi's always well actually it's not true there's a lot of them were just the four of them yeah like but all the DVD uh, not DVD the, those wonderful VHS uh, yes. double packs that all yeah. look filthy with beans and stuff all dropping over it that's like how my, one of the first things I was yeah, seeing of yeah. it and like, it's just those four on the front well, he, that's right. But Alexi, he was very much a part of the initial sales pitch, for sure. Uh, and he was very much always going to be... I mean, there was never any moment where he said, you know, I don't think I'll do this one. Or, I mean, he was always in it. He was always part of it. Mm -hmm. He was sort of one of the main stars of the comedy store, wasn't he? Well, the he? comedy store, he was the... He was the... Yeah. Was the big breakout mega comic was Keith. And Rick was the big sexy... But mm. Alexi was there night after night, week after week. Everybody looked up to him. Everybody respected him. Yeah. Uh, and he was the compare. And he compared um, Boom Boom because he was the obvious... Mm. You know, he was the linchpin, if you mm. like. Comparing yeah. the hardest part of putting on the... Compare's a really, really yeah. difficult thing. You know, most, there's a it? lot of yeah. people just can't do it. Arthur Smith's a very good compare. Mm. Uh, but it's a, it can be an unforgiving task. Mm. You know, you, yeah. you come on after a dead comic or you come mm -hmm. after a brilliant comic. You know, you, I mean, it's tough. Yeah, I was I, I was reading the book, Didn't You Kill My Mother-in-Law? You mm. know, talking about the whole rise of that kind of thing. And the, the chap who launched the club was saying, I was so, yeah, I'm sure you know this story, but I was sort of ready to give up with all the, you know, I had open auditions and mm. it was just constantly people who are told in the pub you're very funny and they yeah. come along and they're terrible and it wasn't until Alexi uh, two people that made him sort of go right I, this can work Lee Corns and Alexi Sale apparently with well two there that, you go yeah. that would be Peter Rosengard the, yeah, the, Peter this Rosengard. insurance guy yeah. I'm talking about but he was an insurance guy and a very successful insurance guy and he just went to Los Angeles for a holiday or something or, I don't know mm. went to the comedy store and thought I've got to do this Came back, didn't bother to check whether there were enough comics, but just said, right, and did this deal with the Nell Gwynn, and then, of course, found out there weren't that many comics. And people like Clive Anderson and Lenny Bennett and people turning up, you know, doing their thing, which wasn't really quite yeah. fitting in. But Alexi, from the very beginning, I, I would say there's a good chance that if Alexi hadn't been there regularly at the very beginning, it wouldn't have lasted, mm. because he was the go-to 
anchor point, you know. Can you talk a little bit about the uh, the dig the Young Ones has on The Good Life in uh, Series <laughs> 2? The Good Life sketch, which is just a brilliant sketch. I mean, that, that speech of AIDS is just a masterpiece of tour de force of performance, isn't it? I felt slightly guilty about it. I, mean, I thought it was very funny, and there was no way I was going to say we couldn't do it. But the guy who produced The Young Ones... I'd worked with quite a lot. He was a guy called John Howard Davison. In fact, by this time, he was head of department, the comedy department at the BBC. But I liked John. I'd worked with him. He, he played Oliver in the original 1950s or 30s oh, really? or whatever movie of Oliver. He's that little golden head <laughs> boy. The was, musical one or the black and white one? No, before. the black and white okay. Oliver, the actual, yeah. you know, Oliver. And John was that little angel-faced boy. I knew him well, so I didn't tell him we were doing it. There was no problem getting the rights because we only just literally played the title music and then tore down the green screen, or actually blue screen, I think it was, and aid came through. So that wasn't a problem. I don't even think we had to ask for the rights. I think being a BBC programme, you could just use the clip. Anyway, we recorded it, and it was very funny, and I, I liked it, and I didn't say anything. And after it had gone out a few days later, I was walking along the corridor, and there was John, and he looked at me, and he came up to me, and he said... I wish you hadn't done that. <laughs> and he walked past and I thought, well, that's very magnanimous because you could have absolutely. Uh, and I said, I'm sorry. I said, I'm sorry. Oh, I'm sure he was forgiving. It, it was all he that, was fine. You know yeah. what he was he, he said, and he meant it. I wish you hadn't done it, but he was fine. And believe me, Felicity Kendall has few bigger fans than Rick Mayer. <laughs> well, that was clear from the laundrette. Um, I think scene. so. I think so. <laughs> so you handed the pilot script for the young ones. What is it that sort of leapt out about it that was special to you? So Rick and Lisa said, look, we want to do this. We've written this sitcom about, and obviously it's what we know. It's the, it's the four boys in living in student digs. And I immediately thought, 40 pen, right, okay, I know where I am. And it was biro written on A4, and it had, a, I always remember a coffee, I wish I'd kept it. It had a coffee mug thing on the front page. And I read it, and I just thought, whereas what I should have thought is, this is unshootable. <laughs> what I did think was, this is just fantastic this is you know i like them on stage and i know they're going to be big but i don't know what what yeah. and now th- okay this is what because this is just incredible and it spoke i mean it was a younger generation than mine really but i was still just about enough in touch to say you know i only 10 years out of a student flat myself and mm. i kind of could see what it could be and my next thought was we can do this this is yeah. the bbc we can do this and if we can't we'll find okay we'll admit we can't but most of this we will be able to do with people like Johnny Bragg and Dave Howard and, and Laurie, Roger Fenner and Heather Gilder and these people, Ed Wood and editing. We can make this work. Was it that same sort of feeling you'd had when you first went into the comedy store and you saw this new, the, these new acts and you thought this is going to be big? Did you feel that like the same thing was going to happen no, not with quite. television? When, when I saw them there, I, I say you can't sit in a room and watch Rick or Keith or, and indeed, you know, many of the others, let's, let's be clear, I mean, Aid, let's not forget Aid and Peter Richardson and, and Alexi, uh, you can't sit and you think to yourself, well, these people are clearly going to be successful, you know, I mean, they know how to do it, they're going to break through. And because it's different from anything that's going on at the moment, there will be a big movement. So mm. you, that I left that night thinking that and that got reinforced over the next few months. When I read the script, I thought, and this is the vehicle that will do it. So I kind of knew what they could do already. And that yeah. was the wonderful thing. You read this script and you knew, you knew exactly what they, you knew yeah. exactly who Vivian was because I'd yeah. seen Aid doing it. On, so you could read it exactly knowing what it was going to be. And I just couldn't wait to, I mean, I just couldn't wait yeah. to do it. And I took it to Robin. And, you know, I've got no idea to this day why they commissioned the pilot. I read it because they didn't. <laughs> didn't like it. Did they? Didn't understand it. It wasn't, they didn't like it. But I think in a way that's better because yeah. if they didn't like it, they wouldn't have done it. They thought, we don't know what this is, so let's. He seems to think he knows, and that was the wonderful thing at the BBC at the time. They were big enough and rich enough; they could afford to do a pilot if it didn't yeah, work, you know. Yeah. So they just said to me, "Go and do it, go and do it." On this, that very subject as well, you you not only do it, but you subvert youth culture programs in the first the pilot episode yeah. with that. Um, I've forgotten the name of it now. Nosing around, nosing around. Yeah, Ben going all. all Manic to the Oxford Road Show. Mistake of the Oxford Road Show. Well, that's so brave. The first, your first episode, just showing well, you know how what, it's not the, done as well. With the young yeah. ones, there was never any point in not doing uh. what you could do. You know, so they said to me when they gave it to me, "Look, it's we know it's mad. We know it's off the wall. You know, just tell us what we can't do." And I said to my when I gathered my team together, I said to them, "We're not going to not do any of this, are we? We're going to find out a way to do this." And they really got wrapped up in it. And the lighting guys, the sound guys, the costume guys, they were brilliant. And they just mm. said, no, no, hang on, leave it. We, we, hang on, I'll work it out. They later on told me, so the way you do a, a sitcom, it's pretty standard. You, you get a bit of pre-filming, then you get a week's rehearsal at North Acton, 
and then you do the studio day. Normally only one day for a sitcom, but we were entertainment. So we, mm-hmm. we could never have done those shows in one day. So we got a two-day shoot, which was massively Even important. two days doesn't seem No, enough. I tell you what, it was pushing me on. But, <laughs> but on the Thursday of the week, so your Saturday-Sunday shoot, on the Thursday you get all the tech crew come and they watch your run-through because obviously they've got to work out their plot. They've got to see what's going to happen. So you're, on, you're in this big wooden floored room, rehearsal room, mm. with all the set marked out in tape on the floor. And they run it for you. They, yeah. they do the thing and they all, they all the lighting guys are running around. And you have to warn people who haven't done it before, don't expect laughs because they're not actually watching you. They're not listening yeah, to the comedy. Yeah. They're, they're putting a dot on their map where mm-hmm. you are. And actually, we got some laughs, which was really pretty unheard of. People were actually laughing. And then the boys went up and I said, you know, go and have a coffee. And you sit down with the, the team. And one of them, I can't remember who, one of them said, Paul, I just want to say thank God. And I said, why? They said, because when we read this, we had no idea what the fuck you were up to. <laughs> we just thought this was... And now, he said, now I can see it. Oh, okay. And yeah. it's going to be brilliant. And my sound is... My lighting... It's yeah. going to be the best I've ever done because this is brilliant. And they were all like, yes. All rose to the standard of... All of rose other, to the standard yeah, right. of, of the writing and the performance that yeah. they just seen as well. Because again... Once you get to the two Ronnies, you don't give any performance at all on that tech. Right? I'll stand here and I'll say this and then I'll walk yeah. over here. And, yeah. and Rick and Aid, well, you, you know, they, you can't, they're natural performers. And people started to laugh a bit and then they upped the ante. And then That's good. To get that enthusiasm from all the crew, that, that makes, it, makes it more than work, doesn't it? Well, it, you know what? It, the Young Ones was just brilliant fun. I mean, the filming on The Young Ones, where we did burn the candle at both ends a little bit, I'm afraid. Well, it's, it's a show that's quite... I mean, it's well known for its stunts and the injuries are quite well known. But we wondered if you had a particular favourite near-death experience of any of the uh, any well, of the cast. The stupid experience was me. Uh, so there's an episode in the second season, I think, where they go back to a medieval village. Mm-hmm. Um, and Nigel is a knight in armour and rides up to all these peasants. Or I think Lee may have been a peasant, actually. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah, he, he was, yeah. And he's riding through and he, uh, he comes to the village. Somebody frightens the horse and he has to fall off the horse into a puddle. And we were shooting this the day after a big night out. And when we had a night out on the young ones, it was a big night. And uh, <laughs> I tell you almost certainly, I don't remember, but I bet you Hale and Pace were down for that village shoot because whenever uh, Gareth and Norman came down, that's when we had a big night. Mm. Uh, and we had, a, And we were all... We were not good that morning. <laughs> it was so slow and turgid and nothing was happening. I had a head like a bloody steam hammer. I couldn't yeah. think. Very stupid way to behave. But um, <laughs> we got to the shot and I did Nigel, fair enough, rearing back. And then I had to get him splashing into the puddle to cut the two shots together. And he was kind of wimping about a bit and saying, I don't know how, can I, how should I fall? I don't know. No. And I just lost it. I came running out of the truck. Ed was on the floor. And I said, Ed! I went running out of the truck and went to the back. I said, Nigel, you go like this. And I threw myself back into this quite deep puddle. It turned out quite deep muddy puddle. So I was absolutely covered. And I said, now fucking get on with it, will you? <laughs> and he did do it, to be fair. He did do it. Of course, I then went back to the truck. I was completely... Uh, Ed, I think, Ed tells the story. I think Ed said he walked off when he saw me coming down the hill. He said, I don't want anything to do with this. I think he walked off the set. Uh, and... And, and everybody was a bit pissed off and they thought we were being a bit stupid, to be absolutely honest. So I wasn't too bothered. I went to costume and said, um, have you got anything? You know, because, and you know, she gave me a hair shirt. She gave me one of the peasants. <laughs> she said, that's all I've got, Paul. There you go. You can itch in this all day. Oh, itchy, <laughs> hot, yeah. you know, the, the muddy underpants. And I said, come on, Val, you must. And she said, no, that's all I've got. <laughs> and I thought, okay, fair deal. Bit I'm, of self-flagellation I'm, there. For self, you. It was a bit of self. Nigel Planer comes and slips her a fiver later on and says, "Thank you for that. Thank you for hiding the rest of the costume." Yeah. When you were directing it, how did you find directing? I know, obviously, there were three writers, and Ben Elton was in it occasionally. But and with Rick as a main cast member, how did you find directing someone who is has also written it? Well, Ben was first of all, Ben was very often in the room, and so was Lisa very often, right, even right. when they weren't. Obviously, Lisa was never in it, but even when Ben wasn't in it, he would he would normally in the week come past. But he wasn't there all the time. So Rick, in a way, was able and quite very sensibly did. He became a cast member at that point. Mm. So and he, 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 I resisted saying to him, Rick, what did that mean? And he said, well, you, I, you know, I didn't, I'm only one of the writers. He didn't like that thing of yeah. I'm the writer. 
in fact, we did have issues when we were rehearsing, you know, like you always do, and something wouldn't quite work. And they'd all work on it together. And it was very egalitarian. Yeah. And Rick never pulled the look, I'm the writer card and this is how it's going to be. And in those early stages, they didn't have much idea of how it was going to look. They left that to me, although they learned very quickly and yeah. started to write for the shot, so right. to speak, uh, in the way that Barker always wrote that the camera will be here and it'll be looking at this. So they learned that very quickly. But uh, Rick never pulled the big I am writer and, and what was brilliant though was having him in the room because yeah. I know I could at any point go to him and say I'm not is that the joke have I got that right and most fans know about the fifth housemate that was lurking yeah. in the background of some scenes what was the original idea behind that and do you feel the idea that it did was play? I think it was a Lisa Mayer idea most of those wacky ideas were and the idea was it was somebody who'd come to a party I think even before the boys had moved in they'd gone to one of those all night you know all weekend rave up parties and they just forgotten to leave and they were just <laughs> sitting behind the thing so we employed this extra and blocked the whole scene I mean she'd just come in on the day or recording day and we say look sit behind the sofa there or sit mm. there and it would just be in a passing shot and then after the first series I think we abandoned it and we never said anything about it mm. and, yeah. and to be absolutely honest with you I completely forgot about it for 20 years and then somebody in Australia spotted it mm-hmm. and it became yeah. a social media thing and I phoned Posse I phoned Jeff Posse and said what was that all about Jeff? And he said, yes, we had this girl. Nobody can remember who she was. She's never come forward, as far as I know, to say it was me. So her face is completely obscured. I'm yes, really you can't sure see her at all. People, uh, there was a story at one point that it was Lisa. It wasn't, it was Lisa's uh-huh. idea. Do you, do you find things like that sort of, when uh, new formats come out, whether it's VHS or DVD or on streaming services, certain things get rediscovered by a new audience. For instance, the the freeze frames of video freeze frame inserts, yep. that kind of thing. And you find yourself sort of asking, answering the questions again about them because people are discovering them for, for the first time. You find that all of a sudden it's as though a new generation is asking you the same Yeah, in a way it is. Them, and, you know? and you do sort of get tired of talking yeah, about yeah, yeah. how Mike was cast and, and no, no, why no. the flash frames were in. But um, <laughs> they were a very specific reaction reaction to the when I was at university we used to have Dylan nights and or Clapton nights and you'd just all get together in a room and you'd play Clapton all night and the time of the young ones the VHSs were very one of the some of the earliest VHSs must have been series one of of young ones you know two VHSs with three episodes uh-huh, each yeah. on them I mean, and uh, people were literally playing them till the tape wore off and trying to freeze frame them to look at things and so on and we heard about that and that's really why we put them in just to give yeah. people a bit of a laugh to try and freeze the frame which is almost impossible to do basically back then yeah I had a at the time, advanced VHS thing that could skip forward, ah. like, like one that had the linear yeah. Uh, edit. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Could do. Um, well, that's f- the only way you could do it. You couldn't do it by hitting no, the no, button because it, it's, it's, it's most of them are four frames. I mean, mm. a, a sixth of a second. You know, so, so my first um, way of rewatching the art, first caught it on BBC Two or something. First one I saw was boring, and then still my favourite episode. Then catching them on UK Gold and stuff. I ended up buying them all on VHS and, te- and DVD and stuff. My first ones were recording them off of UK Gold. I'm sorry. Um, Good for you. But I always had a, a VHS memory of them. And some of the ones I just originally were thought, like, oh, something's fucked up the recording here. I've got a Western thing That's here. Right. Something went wrong with the, <laughs> right. the channel sort of thing. And yeah, little, some, I think there are some where the picture is wrong. And I thought that was part of the show as well. So it's a weird... Well, the Western one was the most immediately jarring. I mean, there was a dripping tap and there was a frog jumping and there was... And they got shorter and shorter. We started off at about four frames and in the end we got it down to one frame, which is actually invisible. Yeah. Which is what the problem was because subliminal advertising rules on ITV, you couldn't do that. Mm. You got made to take them out. Bill, my dear friend, Bill Cotton, called me in. I was down in the edit suite one day. I got a phone call saying Bill wants to see you. And I went up and said, what, what's this about flash frames in the old one? And I started to tell him this complicated, boring story. And before I'd got to it, he said, Paul, go and take it out. And I said, Bill, really? He said, Paul, go and take it out and <laughs> go back on the old ones and take them out as well. So I did. So oh. they are not, they weren't originally broadcast, but then they're... they're no, they were. The they were being broadcast. And John Lloyd and Robin Doug, Grant Naylor, were doing spinning image at the time. And they thought it was, they, you know, the whole thing was just so stupid and poncy and self-indulgent. And John and Rob and Doug put up a flash frame caption that said something like, in writing, said something like, this is a technical error called a flash frame, but Paul thinks it's really funny and he's doing them <laughs> in the young ones. It was something like that. Yeah. And Norris McGuerter, the right-wing politician who hated spitting image, yeah. saw it and realised it was a contravention of the 
licensing laws because it was a subliminal frame. Right. So he complained to ATV, who did Spitting Image, or Central did Spitting Image, and there was a brouhaha about it. Yeah. And they said, well, we're just doing this because... So Bill gets a phone call saying, well, hang on, just because it's not against your rules, you shouldn't be doing it, it's subliminal. Phones me up from the edit, and luckily I already knew him quite, he became a very dear friend. And he just said, Paul, take it out. Yeah. And are there Bill, any... there's no punchline to the joke. <laughs> <laughs> are there any deleted scenes that have never seen the light of day? I don't think so. The only scene I remember having to edit and being annoyed at... I know Ed talks in his in his talk with you about the fact you never really chop a scene if you can possibly avoid it, and we didn't ever on Young Ones. You, you trim and cut and cut around. But there was one scene that we were made to cut, which is where the Rick leaves his two teddy bears on the bed when he's been in the bedroom and he goes out and puts the two teddy bears, which is quite a sweet little thing. He's got teddy bears in his bedroom. As soon as the door closes, the one hops on top of the other and starts shagging. Uh, and, you know, we were told to cut it. I mean, just unbelievable. <laughs> Can you believe that? So I had to cut it. I mean, you know, you, it only happened once in the whole yeah, of the yeah. 12 episodes of the other one. So it's not like it's a draconian system, but when it said no, it said no. You just had to go and for, cut it. For once in 12 episodes, that's a good track record. Exactly, so, yeah, exactly. Yeah. And I didn't mind it. And so we cut that. And I don't know, has that ever been released on a DVD? Or I don't know. If it I've, never got, seen that. Well, I've got a memory of that. You yeah, say it, it probably has been included in It wasn't on the first broadcast. but hmm. So that was not the puppets thing, was it? It was a, a puppet cup, cutaway? Or? Uh, no, so it was it was two teddy bears literally. Yeah. So he, we did puppet teddy, but this wasn't even a puppet teddy. Oh, it was right. it was the silly joke was Rick, you mm. know, this big yeah. bold. He had teddy bears in his bedroom. Mm -hmm. He had his yeah. two teddy bears, and he did very sweetly. You know, he go to sleep, and and then the moment he was out, and he was on top. <laughs> the big one that we argued about and won was the Tampax scene in the in in yeah. the little party mouse. in yeah. the little mouse mm. in the telescope, which they wanted <laughs> cut completely on the whole scene up. And about Lisa. girls and bodily fluids is disgusting, isn't yeah, it? Yeah, I, I, and, 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 and you know when Aid goes down and does press-ups to show how, yeah. how hard he is? Yeah. They thought that was fucking the floor. They said, well, you've got to cut that bit where Aid's fucking the floor. I said, what? He's fucking the floor. He's not. He's doing press-ups to show how strong he is. Well, why is it such a big laugh? Because it's funny, a bloke being so stupid. Mm -hmm. Anyway, part of their elbow, Lisa came in uh, on that particular meeting and said, you know, this is something that 50% of the world do yeah. for quite a large part of their life. What are you talking about? Yeah. How can you... And, and I think it was Jim Moyer. Jim said, you know what? Fair point. Mm. Yeah, and the yeah. joke's on Rick's ignorance. The joke's on Rick's ignorance. Yeah. The whole thing is about, you know, when I was a kid, never look in a lady's handbag. You know, whenever my aunts would leave a handbag and you'd go, don't touch a lady's handbag, mm. you know. Presumably, I now assume for that reason. And so the whole joke was, he's so... You know, he's right on and with the girls and and he doesn't know what a tampax yeah. is. You know, it just... Uh, but Lisa spoke really persuasively. And, of course, Rick and Lisa wrote this essay. You know that story? No. Rick and, when, when we'd finished the first series, I think, there was suddenly a whole question about, you know, could it go out at all? And, you know, why was it all anti what a lot of what the BBC were doing and critical of their own shows and so on? Yeah. And we were asked to justify it. And, again, Rick and Lisa and I, I don't think Ben was involved in that one, Went into this meeting with Jim Moyer, I think it would have been, or Robin Nash, one or the other. And we had this long discussion and whoever it was said, well, do you think you could write that as a paper for me? And Rick and Lisa went away and wrote this, you know, they were only just out of uni. They wrote this academic, like a grade paper uh, about what Young Ones was and what the cartoon violence was and what the politics were and the me generation and what mm. the four characters represent. I mean, it's a really academic paper. I wish I'd kept it. And it was on file at the BBC for quite a long time because a friend of mine who was a production manager at the BBC years later said to me, I was researching uh, for, for a show about the young ones and I found this incredible essay. Did you know it existed? And I said, oh, yeah, I gave it in. <laughs> and it was at that time still in the files. I mean, I should have said to her, get me a copy, you know, but... Well, we'll do if it would still be there. Be well, I'm, I've got, uh, uh, I don't have a date for it yet, but as part of the research for the book, I've got a slot booked for the BBC archives at some point when they when they're sort of getting their system back in order because they're only just opened up now after covid and i asked for all their materials related to bottom which they said they didn't have a huge amount and i and I, so to add to it i said can i see all your materials related to the young ones as well so if it's in there I'll... well it, this was only about four or five years ago she oh, said okay. to me okay. and it would be it would have been filed somewhere we would have written it between recording the first series and broadcasting the first okay. series so it would have been in that window yeah that's okay did you feel any pressure for series 2 to live up to series one no i think when we, when the first one went out we used to 
for a time, we all used to go for a meal on the day it went out. We used to, well, the very first one, they all came round to my house and then we went for a meal up on Clapham Common. We said, just as we were sitting there before it went out, look, whether this works or not, it doesn't matter because we know we've done what we set out to do. We know that these six shows are, as best as we could achieve it, what we set out to do. Mm. And so if it doesn't work, it doesn't work. And, you know, it's been a great ride. And if it does work, that's good. And then, of course, it worked really well. And we were, it was just a barrel of fun, really. And then they came back and asked for the second one. And yeah, God, it's great. But immediately, but we're not doing any more, you know. And, and the big argument was 40 Towers was only 12. Why should we presume to do yeah, more? Yeah, Gervais said that for a while. So stuff, we'll, we'll write the last mm. one as, as kept, we'll yeah. kill them off in the last one. It will be the last one. They were intended to, that's them dead, not because they die in. The first episode. Well, they, <laughs> yes, they, they, bombs go off and the yeah. house explodes in the first. No, that was them. And then we did the, the black skeletons on the on the credits. You know, we did that very strange credits where yeah, okay. everybody just gets on a roll call rather than the categories. Yeah, it was absolutely written as they get killed. Yeah. Mm. Hi, this is Matt Brooks from the future editing this episode and it's quite a long one and we've decided to cut this one into two parts because as i said it's a long episode us three are not going to cut out much of what the legendary paul jackson has to say about the comedy industry wanted to keep nearly all of this so join us for part two where paul jackson will talk more about his contributions to what we feel is the incredibly important art form comedy that sounds like i'm taking the piss but no seriously but join us for part two next week or probably about the same time. No, fuck it, let's release them both at the same time. You can download the next one right now.